it. Today we're going to look at the gospel message that Peter then proclaimed in the Holy Spirit to those crowds, and then next week we'll be looking at the effect on the early church. To start with, let's look back to the other book written by the same author, to Luke's Gospel, to chapter 3, which shows John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus with these words. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than me will come, the straps of whom sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John then baptizes Jesus in water. Heaven is opened, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form. Jesus is then described in the text of the gospel as being full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness for 40 days of preparation. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then Jesus uses some words from an Old Testament prophet to proclaim the start of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He finishes the section of Isaiah with today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke sets out that as the pattern for the start of Jesus' ministry. Let's remember what an impact that had. Even before his death and resurrection, Jesus was stirring up an entire country. He shook a nation. He disturbed the leaders. He raised the hopes of the people. And so much more then follows after that. In doing all of that, he fulfills literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. And then Luke starts his sequel, Acts, in exactly the same way. He actually starts Acts by saying, my previous book to you was an account of what Jesus began to do. Acts is the account of what Jesus continues to do. We heard last week about that baptism of the Holy Spirit on 120 followers gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They have spent 40 days learning from Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension, and then they spend another 10 days of preparation in a room praying earnestly. They then receive the Holy Spirit. The visual and auditory effects of that are so pronounced, some people mock them for being drunk. Um, don't move on to the slide that says these words, but the first bit of our text today is, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowds. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses words from Joel, an Old Testament prophet, as Jesus unleashes the ministry of the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is deliberately starting both these works to show that if you read the gospel and think what an amazing job Jesus did, he starts off the church in exactly the same way. And Jesus says, he promises, whoever believes in me and will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And if you think about it, the reason he goes to the Father is because then he can send the Holy Spirit. As we get into this dynamic gospel which Peter unfolds, we're going to look at the things that Peter thinks it's worth including when he preaches 
the word of God, when he preaches the gospel. So, and I think that can tell us lots about how we pre- should present things today. And then we're going to look at the response of the people back then. And again, I think that tells us about what the response of people to the gospel should be in these days. And actually, we're going to start even before Peter begins to talk. Because on the next slide, we see that the Holy Spirit does a job of attracting unbelievers. Okay, In this first evangelistic preach delivered by the church in the power of the Holy Spirit, then actually people were there in the first place because of the effects of the Spirit. People had been transformed by the Spirit at Pentecost up in that room. And there are these effects which are noticeable. You can see them. People hear them. Stuff is going on. Have you ever seen that happen where the Spirit moves so much that actually people are attracted and want to know what's going on? I remember when I went to university meeting people for the first time whose faith made a difference and their lives were visibly different. And I wanted something of what they had. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted it. I was attracted by the exuberance of spirit-filled worship, which I hadn't really witnessed before. And I wanted that because I saw the spirit doing stuff. I spent time with a student there who had been the main drug dealer kind of on, on, on the site and had had his life turned around when he became a Christian and the Holy Spirit indwelt him. And he spent time in his room with his former customers coming in and being fascinated by the prayer meetings and people being knocked over by the Spirit. And the effect it had on people was amazing. They saw it and they wanted to know about it. They were curious. I remember being at a large Christian gathering once when a little girl and her mum came running across the grounds after, uh, about 10 minutes after a service had finished, just shouting, she's been healed. And she had visibly been healed of something that had been disfiguring her skin. It was physically gone. And there were nominal Christians attending it because they were going on with someone else. And they saw that the Spirit does stuff. It changes lives. And they were curious. They wanted to know more. And it led to stuff happening after the service. People's lives were changed. There's debate about whether the Methodist preacher Wesley ever said this, but I love the gist of this bit. When asked, why do such large groups of people gather to listen to you preach? He said, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. That burning of the Holy Spirit attracts people, and that is the first thing we need to see happening today if we want people to listen to the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the first step there. He's in every step. So Peter uses this curiosity as a hook to get people interested in what he's about to say. He finds out what they're talking about, what they are asking, and he attempts to answer those questions. But actually, the next thing that I notice when I look at this text is that the acts of the Holy Spirit actually include a lot of words. Okay? We're going to read the passage today in several chunks. And unlike some weeks where that's so we can focus in on one or two key words in one sentence, today it's just because there is so much text. But that is good, and that is God's plan. God has done that on purpose. It was not a mistake. There's been loads of debate over the years over what the proper title for this book is. Is it just called Acts? Is it the Acts of the Apostle? Is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Actually, the word Acts in itself, I mean, if you look at the book, a full quarter of the length of the book of Acts is written down concise versions of speeches given by Peter, by Paul, by James, by Stephen. 
a quarter of the length, is the Holy Spirit doing one of his jobs, which is proclaiming how great Jesus is, glorifying him, and describing his works. Okay? One, one of the consequences of being filled with the Holy Spirit is wanting to talk about what Jesus has done in the Bible and what Jesus has done in your life. We don't always find the words of the scriptures easy, but that doesn't mean they're not valuable. Peter here, Stephen in Acts 7, Paul when we get to Acts 13, all quote and use the Old Testament. And I'm so blessed that that's happened so much this morning. They use the Old Testament, and they don't use the easy bits. They don't use the stories that we remember from being taught early on. They use the Psalms, the prophets, and they take them out of their original context to show how they're being fulfilled. It's difficult stuff, but it's stuff that blesses us so much. My point here is we need to use both the New and the Old Testament. We need not to be scared of the Bible, of the Word of God, when we are talking to people about Jesus. And before people say, yeah, but Peter was talking to Jewish crowds back then, it's different, people aren't speaking the Word today, this is, one of, this is the only author, Luke is the only author of any book in the Bible who is a Gentile, and he's writing this book to a Roman official. These guys were not steeped from birth in it either, and they are using God's word. We need to do that. It's the power of God for our for salvation. It relates to us personally. Looking on with this, there's a link to where the people are, though. Peter looks at their context. He doesn't just have something pre-prepared that he delivers regardless of what people are saying, what mood they're in. Okay? While maintaining that God's word is central to the message, Peter thinks about where people are coming from. He does launch straight into an Old Testament prophet, but that's relevant here because they're in Jerusalem for a Jewish feast of Pentecost and because they're asking questions about what they are currently witnessing. They're asking, why are these men talking in strange tongues? Why can we hear them in our own languages? Why are they proclaiming the word of God so vigorously? Um, if we see the text here, it says, the next bit, are, um, the mid middle bits, if we go back one slide, verse 17, on the previous slide, I hope. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. It's been a really long wait for this prophecy to come to pass, maybe as much as 900 years. But Peter has no doubt whatsoever he has witnessed this today. A new age has begun. He's had this remarkable spiritual encounter that very morning. And although it's going to take him years to understand the full significance and the theology of what's just happened, he knows with the Holy Spirit's help that actually this is it. Now, the wording at the start of this chunk of text in verse 17 is not the same as what Joel wrote originally. Joel had written, and afterwards, which Peter changes to, in the last days. Joel's writing made it clear that this was for the future. Peter takes it 
and makes it clear and has the boldness to proclaim that actually history itself has been split in two by Jesus' death and resurrection. And we are now in those last days. They've started, we are living in the last days. They're not something that's going to happen in the future. They are now. And God says that there's going to be a flooding, a deluge. He describes it in words that make people describe this as lavish, almost wasteful. Earlier on in Joel 2, before this, uh, the bit that's being quoted here, God is described as sending abundant showers. This is more than that. Much more. The image of pouring out shows that God is not keeping some back for later, for after the last days. Throughout the last days, there is a full torrent of his spirit being flooded out on his church. Now, in the Old Testament, we get a description of the spirit coming to rest on a handful of people, leaders in each generation. Not many people at all. But living in these last days, the Holy Spirit is available universally to all Christians, to all of us. It's signalled in Pentecost by individual flames of fire, tongues of fire, coming to rest on each of the people, not just the 12, probably 120 people in that room. That's a visible signal, teaching us some theology there. It doesn't matter what gender, what age, what social standing, and verse 39 is going to tell us whether you're Jew or Gentile, your race, does not matter. This is a massive social upheaval. The church should be different to the world. The church should be a melting pot of all people from all bits of society coming together, and we know that the world is not unified in the same way. We need to make sure the church is that, though. There are gifts for all people here. The picture painted here is just blending together. Prophecy, visions, dreams, it's not distinguishing them fully. This is not the same as bits in Corinthians where Paul teaches about them. But one thing is really true. We're all called to prophecy because one of the meanings of prophecy is just taking the word of God to the people. That is something we are all called to do. We all universally have that privilege. Continuing with the words on this slide and the theme of upheaval, Joel's words then vividly describe signs of the end times. I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, blood here calls to mind the Passover. There was a visible column of smoke and fire that denoted the presence of God himself that helped the Israelites get through the wilderness. And at nighttime, it was a pillar of fire signifying God. When they got to Mount Sinai, it was surrounded with cloud and smoke. And when God stepped down and put his feet on the mountain, it says that there is fire and smoke. All of these signs, the Jews at the time, the people that Peter was preaching to, would have seen this as pictures of the awesomeness of God, but they would also, with these words, have been reminded of his protection for his people. They would not have seen this as just a negative, oh, stuff's going to go wrong in the future. They would have seen this as God is near and he protects his people, even though he's awesome. 
We should take that in the same way. We live in these last days. Revelation graphically describes what's going to happen during these last days. Opposition and oppression of God's people. But it also says that that means now is the time for the gospel to spread. Now is the time for the kingdom to enlarge. Now is the time for people to be saved as they call on the name of the Lord and are then under his protection. Moving on to the next slide, we see that actually the gospel also, as well as being linked to uh, the context, it's centered on Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. So, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. In trying to get the balance right between saying we do need to adapt our presentation of the gospel to our context, to our current times, but without diluting the essential message of God's word, I'm blessed by the start of this passage. Listen to this. Jesus, that is the message. Couldn't be much clearer. The gospel always starts with Jesus. Peter makes clear in this passage that Jesus is fully man. He also in this paragraph, later on in today, uh, what we look at today, makes clear that he is fully God as well. Miracles, linking to uh, um, our, our word there, dynamic, acts of power, demonstrate the power of God. Wonders means things that get the people's attention. And the word signs, things that signify spiritual truth. Um, We went through, not that long ago, the idea of the wedding at Cana and the fact that Jesus produces new wine, which is better than the old wine. That's signifying the new covenant, the gospel is better than the old covenant, that Abraham, that's a spiritual truth, that's a signpost. So these three different words, actually all of them are being used at Pentecost. Christ continues his ministry through the church using power, Getting the people's curiosity and astonishment, but actually signifying what's going on and teaching us about God and his plans. All of that is going on here. Now, Peter's in a fairly unique situation here. He's able to preach in the city where Jesus had been crucified just 50 days earlier. And in the crowd, probably there are people who were in the crowd 50 days earlier. Some of these guys listening probably had been shouting, crucify him, less than two months before. Peter naturally explains that they are personally responsible for Jesus being killed. They are personally responsible for the death of the one who has been anointed by God himself. Now, I'm not sure anyone here would kind of deliberately accuse Peter of having it easy because he's got people in the crowd who have got blood on their hands and might repeat murder. But actually, the way we act out, I think sometimes it's as if we are saying he's got it easy, because in our society, how hard is it to tell people that there is this thing called sin that is actually right and wrong? We, we, we play as if we've got it harder than him. And probably, there aren't people we get to talk to who have actually been killing people. Some parts of the world, yes. In our society at the moment, not so much. Do we have the boldness to match Peter's here? We've got the same spirit. 
Moving on to the next slide, we didn't use this song earlier on, although everything else that came up earlier on is coming in here. I was just reminded at this point, Peter's call out is emotional. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Peter's words of condemnation in this passage were true of me and they were true of you. If you haven't repented and received Christ, they are still true of you. Christ only went to the cross because of our sin. Now, he didn't have to. It was his choice. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit collectively decided this is what would happen. Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. The text talks clearly about the purpose of God here. But that choice was only there to make because of our willful rebellion. I needed someone to be brave enough to stand up to me and say that I wasn't good enough for a perfect God. And that's not what society says. They had to tell me nothing that I could do could make me good enough for God. Not a popular message, but I'm so grateful that they did. Because I can cling to the fact that God took all of my sin and dumped it on Jesus at the cross. He's given me new garments that are pure white. He sees me like that because someone had the guts to actually give the gospel message straight. Moving on to the next slide slightly early, Heather. Um, we see that the gospel is historical, theological, and contemporary, and we're going to have a look at the next chunk of text from verse 25. David said about him, I'm not going to read out this chunk of text. I'm just going to refer to it, but it is up there um, for you. Peter goes on to quote a psalm of David in which we see that David had a strong enough relationship with God to have faith that even death could not separate him from God. He knew God was greater than death. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as an acknowledged prophet, his words in Psalm 16 hold an even greater truth than complete dependence on God. All scripture points to Jesus because all scripture talks about God. But actually, the Jews at the time saw any reference to David as actually referring to his descendant, the Messiah who was to come. Okay, In this case, David had said that God wouldn't abandon him to death, that his Holy One wouldn't see his body decay. But Peter could physically point to David's tomb because David did die. The truth points to the Messiah, it points to Christ. The church through the ages has pointed to Christ's empty tomb because he didn't stay dead. And that was a historical fact. Individual create, uh, Christians have always been a point to lives, their lives, and show that their old self was dead and that they were actually a new creation. There's theology there, but it's simple. It's what God is doing in us. It's exciting. 
Have you been changed by Jesus? Have you met other people whose lives have been radically changed by him and the power of the Spirit? I really hope so. If you have, we can take our personal witness alongside the definitive witness of the New and Old Testaments when we tell people the gospel, the good news. Moving on to the next chunk of text. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Just quickly, comparing this to the start of the Joel quotation, in which it is God who pours out the Holy Spirit, it's clear that Peter is again affirming the deity of Christ. But Peter now uses Psalm 110 in the same way that Jesus had used it in the temple during his earthly life. It's challenging this idea that they had at the time that the Messiah would just be a good ruler who brought back the good old days and chased the Romans out of town. It's not that at all. David is looking as a prophet, awestruck, into the future. He sees the Lord God, the Almighty, talking to one of David's descendants, who is the King of Kings with a capital K. That is not the same. That is not on the same level. It's not the same playing field as David, who is an earthly king with a small K. That's what this is getting at. And just to make the point, God doesn't suddenly make Jesus God. He was God beforehand. He's just revealing Jesus' eternal nature as the second person of the Godhead, as the Lord of the universe, and as the Messiah and the Christ. I'm just going to read from Philippians 2. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Moving on to the next slide, let's have a look at the response of the people to this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Now, Peter has clearly laid stuff out for the crowd. They realise that God has sent the Messiah, who is Lord, and that they've rejected and they've killed him. They literally do not know what to do. They worry they've got the blood of the Lord on their hands, and when that great and terrible day comes, how can they possibly stand up? They've destroyed their only hope. Peter goes on, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to that number that day. 
Just jumping ahead to verse 40, we see that this passage, which takes about three minutes to read out in its entirety, is not all that Peter preached that morning. He used many other words to warn them. Commentators have suggested that's other bits of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. On the next slide, there's a whole load of text that is taken from those three prophets, jumbled up. I'm not going to read it out again, but I am going to refer to bits of that, and you might like to look at it as we talk through the response of the people. Because these words, these prophecies from hundreds of years beforehand that we should be embracing, they fit perfectly with the response of the people to hearing Peter's message, his dynamic gospel message. The Holy Spirit is moving among the people. He had to be, because otherwise no one would get converted at all. He's changing their hearts from the ones of stone, which shouted crucify him, and he's giving them hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit has made the people aware of their sin. They realize they haven't kept God's laws. They remember their evil ways and the wicked deed of rejecting Christ, and they do loathe themselves as the Old Testament had predicted. A spirit of supplication near the bottom of this lot means that they do cry out for forgiveness. Thinking of the one that they have pierced, and they mourn and they grieve for the death of Jesus. 3,000 that day do not add sinning against the Holy Spirit's witness to their sin of having rejected Jesus in the first place, which we have all done. Instead, they repent. They literally turn around their lives and go in another direction. They publicly acknowledge Jesus as Lord in baptism, and they receive grace. That's forgiveness and relief from their guilt, a sprinkling with clean water, as described here, as well as the Holy Spirit to come and live within them. So the church expands rapidly and supernaturally. Just moving on to the next slide. Hopefully this is just going to give kind of a summing up of the things that we've just seen. What is the response to this dynamic gospel? Fear of the Lord is first, followed by repentance and belief. Those two coming together. And then what do they do? It is baptism, this public acknowledgement, but the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And moving on to a final quote that's going to come up here. People are more ready than we choose to assume. 3,000 people were so ready on that day. And why not? The Holy Spirit is at work. It's not to do with us at all. I'm going to talk to a couple of groups of people, but the band might like to come back up at this point. Looking back to these words... Maybe you haven't chosen yet. Who do you say Jesus is? Because I've got to tell you, Peter has been clear. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, as Lord, fully God as well as fully human, utterly perfect, Jesus demands repentance and he demands allegiance. He deserves them both. That allegiance is shown in baptism. We're living in these last days now, but one day he is going to return supernaturally to be visible by all the earth at once. 
And at that point, every knee in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But as Messiah, as Christ, as the Savior of the world, Jesus came that first time to live, to die, and to rise again to deliver you from the effects of sin. The result of sin is death, spiritual death and eventually physical death, separation from God, but Jesus offers forgiveness. Even more, because he ascended to heaven, he offers the Holy Spirit to come and live in you and bring you to full life. David Gooding describes this amazing grace in words similar to these. You had murdered God's son. He is offering you his spirit. You had crucified the second person of the Trinity. He was offering you the third. You had killed God's son and thrown his body out of the vineyard, hoping to inherit the vineyard yourselves. Now he is inviting you to receive God's spirit, not just into your vineyard, but into your very hearts, to be your undying life, to be the guarantee of an infinite and imperishable inheritance. Do you want to accept that today? If so, the time to make that decision in your heart is now. And in a couple of minutes, you can share that with me or one of the ministry team, one of the elders, and receive prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit as well. Many of you have made that decision already. And Steve encouraged me to think about what difference does this message make on Monday morning, whatever we're doing then. And one idea is we'd actively be looking for chances to witness about Christ. After all, after all he's done, is it so hard to just pounce on the what did you do at the weekend question and talk about church? But actually, we need to reflect on the fact that Jesus told the disciples to wait until they had the power of God, the power of the Spirit. And the result of them waiting first was that 3,000 believers were added to the church in the first day. If we've accepted Christ, there is no excuse. We cannot just say, I'm not ready to witness yet. Don't try and get that out of my words. But we can and we should, we must be saying, give me more of your spirit to help my witness. I think what we need is to be filled again with the spirit. We're going to see that in about two weeks, in two chapters time, that that's exactly what happens in Acts. When we get the spirit, when we get more of the spirit, when we're filled with the spirit, we will overflow Like we said right at the start, people will be curious about what's going on in our lives and they will naturally want to ask questions and we will have words the Spirit gives us and we will naturally hunger to share them. Can I encourage you to pursue that this morning, today, every day going forward, be just like Jacob in the Old Testament. I'm not letting go of you until you give me your blessing.